Today on Hearing is Believing. We're all ready for something better. We all desire something better. This is why, for example, we go to the doctor. This is why we stay in school. This is why we enjoy new possibilities. All of us are looking for something better. Connecting contemporary culture to the timeless truths of God's Word. This is Hearing is Believing. Take your Bible and join in 1 Timothy chapter 6. And let me just start out by making this statement. Listen closely. Everyone, everyone is searching for a better life. Now, do you agree with that statement? Everyone is in search right now of a better life. In 2012, the Washington Post ran an article with the headline, The Keys to a Better Life, with a question mark. The Keys to a Better Life. Everyone has an opinion. And then what the Washington Post did, they polled 1,000 people, 1,000 Americans, aged 65 and over, asking them, what are the keys to a better life? And that article highlights six from a Cornell University gerontologist who wrote a book that's based upon the article. She wrote six keys to a better life. Let me give them to you. Number one, work at your passion. If that's possible, work at what you're passionate about. Number two, get an education and as much as you can and as much as you need. Number three, if possible, do something worthwhile and meaningful in your career with a purpose that's larger than yourself. Number four, network, network, network. Number five, travel abroad. Number six, don't be afraid to write, fax, talk, or email people or organizations you don't know if you have something to offer. In other words, number six, don't be afraid to put yourself out there. And so if someone were to come to you and they were to poll you this morning and they were to say, you know, what are the keys to a better life? I wonder what your answer would be. Do you have a top 10? Do you have a top three? What if they were to ask you, what is the, what is the key to a better life? Now, there's an assumption in that question, isn't there? An assumption that we've not addressed yet. The assumption is that everyone wants a better life. Everyone is hoping for a better day. We're here at the end, and you know we've heard s- stories of COVID spiking, and we've seen the reports of COVID spiking. We're all ready for something better. We all desire something better. This is why, for example, we go to the doctor. This is why we stay in school. This is why we enjoy new possibilities. All of us are looking for something better. We're hungry for something better. But what if the answer to having a better life was one word? Contentment. What if the answer to having a better life was contentment? Now that's not an easy answer, is it? It's sort of pregnant and filled full of meaning. Contentment. But what if contentment was the key to a better life? There's an old Puritan preacher that I want to introduce you to today. His name was Jeremiah Burroughs. And he wrote a book. And I love the title of this book. I hate that it's been taken for about 400 years. Otherwise, I'd take it. But anyway, he wrote a book called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. 
And he, def- so little about him, he fled from his home due to persecution. But then after his persecution, or maybe during his persecution, he became the pastor of two of London's most prominent congregations. Listen to how Jeremiah Burroughs defines persecution. Or excuse me, uh, contentment, not persecution. He says this, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposition in every condition. So now that we've set the bar so high, we're already content, right? This is why Paul says in Philippians that he had to learn contentment. Listen to that again. Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal. And here's the kicker. In every condition. So contentment is our 11th principle in our series, Safe to Shore. And as we begin our study of 1 Timothy, as we end our first study, so we end it the same way that we began, focusing on what we saw in the beginning of the letter. And at the end of the letter is this focus on true doctrine. So if at the beginning of the letter you've got a focus on true doctrine, and at the end of the letter you've got a focus on true doctrine, that's like a bracket around what the contents of the letter. And so that tells us a little bit about what the rest of the verses are about. Those true doctrine forms an inclusio, and everything included in between that gives us the focus of the whole letter. So the focus of the whole letter of 1 Timothy is true doctrine. And Paul puts true teaching and the results of true teaching side by side, causing us to realize that true teaching, true teaching produces what Burroughs called that rare jewel, Christian contentment. True teaching produces Contentment. Listen to the word of the Lord. We'll begin in 1 Timothy chapter 6. We'll begin in verse 2, though we'll skip ahead to the second part of verse 2. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine that does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy, quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierce themselves with many pains. Let's pray together, and then we'll jump into the text. 
Thank You for Your Word, our Lord. Thank You that it is inspired of the Holy Spirit. Thank You that it shows us the true portrait of the Son so that we may give the Father glory. And we pray these things. Amen. So what I want to do is I want to point out right in the beginning a key phrase for you. And that key phrase is in verse 3. Look at it. The phrase, sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now you may have a different word than sound. That word sound in my ESV can also be translated healthy. Healthy. And healthy reads better, especially with verse 4. Look at verse 4. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and quarrels about words. Now, we've seen this phrase before. There again, we're, we're ending the letter the same way we began. And we've seen this phrase, sound words, before. We saw it back in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Go back for a minute in 1 Timothy chapter 1, just a couple of pages back, and look at verses 10 through 11. He says this, Whatever else is contrary to sound, there's that word, doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. And so this first reference here to sound doctrine puts itself in reference, listen, to an outward expression of an inward faith. It puts itself in reference to an outward expression of an inward faith, which is exactly what we just witnessed with these four lovely children who were baptized. We saw an outward expression of an inward faith. What we believe has implications for how we behave. There is no separation between the two. As much as the world around us would like for us to contain what we believe in our sacred and holy huddle, we need to be emphatically clear that there is no distinction, not a clear line of distinction between what we believe and how we behave. You and I, we will act in accordance to our beliefs. And this is why Paul, for example, flip back another page, flip back to 1 Timothy chapter 4. This is why Paul tells Timothy to guard his life. Now, skip ahead for just a minute. I'm, I'm, you're going here and there and everywhere. Just, just trust me. He says in chapter 6 and verse 20, guard the deposit entrusted to you. But in chapter 4 and verse 11 through 16, he tells Timothy to guard his life. So Paul is making a connection between those two. What you believe and how you behave. What you believe and how you behave. Let's look at chapter 4, verse 11 through 16 for just a minute. Command and teach these things. See how repetitive the scripture is? Same phrase that we see in 6.2. Teach and urge these things. Well, he says the same thing in 4.11. Command and teach these things. And then he says this. Let no one despise you for your youth, which I always am excited about teaching that. Timothy was about 35, most scholars say, and since I'm 35, I agree with most scholars. Uh, he was about 35 at the time. So he's saying, let no one despise you for your youth. I have people come to me and they say, you know what, you sure are young. And my response to that is, well, I only intend to get older. So just be patient with me. I tell my little girl all the time, she says, uh, Daddy, she says, I wish that I were uh, bigger. And I say, well, the only way that you get bigger is that it gets older. So let's slow down just a little bit. But anyway, so look at what he says here. He says, let no one despise you for your youth, Timothy, but set the believers examples in speech, conduct, in love, in faith, 
in purity until I come, Timothy. Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Look at what he says here. Practice these things. So you see what is the connection? Don't forget. And as you're not forgetting, put it into practice. Prove that you remember it. Not a quietism in our faith, but an outward expression of an inward belief. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them. And then look at the solemn warning in this verse here. Keep a close watch on yourself and on, here's this phrase again, the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So not just, Timothy, you'll save yourself and you'll end well, but those whom God has entrusted to your charge as they're watching, as you're setting before them an example of this, of this uh, inward faith that displays itself outward, you will not only save yourself, but you'll also save those who listen. And here's the point that I'm trying to make. There is no separation between what you believe and how you behave. There's no separation between what you believe and how you behave. You will behave in accordance with your beliefs. And what we believe matters. There was a guy who wrote a book. It was the hardest book that I ever read in seminary. Richard Weaver. Some of you are saying, easiest book I ever read. Well, praise the Lord for you. Hardest book I ever read was Richard Weaver's Ideas Have Consequences. I needed a dictionary just to read the book. may tell you a little bit about me, but anyway... Ideas have consequences. What we believe matters, especially if you and I are in pursuit of something better. How do you know that what you think that you're in pursuit of is really better? What we believe matters, especially if all of us desire better. Listen, better is better. Better might be different. Better might not be different. But different might not be better. Better, excuse me, different, I don't know what I'm saying anymore. The, the point that I'm making here is that when we pursue what is better, and what that means is that that better will end up being in truth. Otherwise, it's not better. And so what we believe matters, especially if we're in pursuit of a better life. And we've not asked the question yet, and we really should ask the question. The question is why do people think that things could or should be better? Where do you get the idea that things could be different or should be different? You know where that comes from? That comes, the Christian can answer that question very easily. The Christian answers that question in creation. The Christian says, you think that things ought to be better because you were made for more. You were made intricately to have a personal relationship with God. And you'll not find satisfaction in this world until you find your satisfaction in knowing Him. And so you were made for better. You were made for more. You desire better because you were made for better. And so what I want to do this moment and that we're together, I just want very quickly to take just a quick trip to discover some old remedies that doctors use to prescribe people.
to help them pursue a better life. So the first thing that doctors used to prescribe people to help uh, pursue a better life was smoking. You'd go to the doctor back in the day, and they would have you pick out a cigarette and start smoking it. Some of you who are smokers in, a, in our midst today, you're like, I've been telling my family this for years. Finally, someone agrees. But look at this. The name of this uh, little thing that you'd see probably at the general store is uh, a reference for Dr. Batty. By the way, that's probably a pun there, and it's intended. Dr. Batty. And he prescribes asthma cigarettes. Asthma cigarettes. This is a real ad. Asthma cigarettes for your health. Since 18, I think it says, let's see, 1802 or 1882 for the temporary relief of asthma. Smoking these asthma cigarettes, Dr. Batty's cigarettes, effectively treats asthma, hay fever, foul breath, all diseases of the throat, head colds, canker sores, bronchial irritations. We're thinking, where is this for the relief of COVID? Maybe that's the solution. But what I love what's written on the bottom end of it. What does it say on the very bottom? Not recommended for children under six. There we go. So number one, smoking. Number two, a tapeworm diet. Tapeworm diet. I love this. It says this, this beautiful slim lady here standing over a bunch of flour and all kind of other foods and uh, probably some kind of uh, Crisco or something. Anyway, it says, eat, 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 and always stay thin. Fat, the enemy that is shortening your life, is banished. How? With the help of sanitized tapeworms. Jar-packed, friends from a fair form, easy to swallow. Just in case you were wondering, the little sidebar says no ill effects. So, <laughs> number three, number three, that bottle there, if you can't see it, it says Clark's Blood Mixture. Back in the day, doctors used to prescribe something called corpse medicine. Now, that was a doctor in our first service, and afterwards he didn't refute any of this, so I'm guessing all of this is right. He said, uh, excuse me, this is Clark's Blood Mixture. And so listen to this little ditty. Listen to what it's Corpse medicine for hundreds of years, up to the 1890s, folks, up to the 1890s. So people used to worship in this church, and they might have had a bottle of blood mixture in their bag for their ailments. It was common to use the human body as an ingredient in various medicines. Which human parts were used, you might ask? Pretty much all of them. For example, the human liver was prescribed to those suffering from epilepsy. But the most common were blood, fat, bone, and flesh. And during the 16th and 17th centuries, many physicians actively prescribed corpse medicine to their patients. One of the most popular remedies back in the day was made of smuggled Egyptian mummies. The mummified remains were usually powdered, uh, uh, that makes sense to me, and used as a treatment for epilepsy, bruising, and hemorrhaging. All right, that's three out of a list of 180. How many of you are ready this morning to try those remedies for a better life? Anyone? Anyone want a spoonful? No? Why not? Because you know better. Because you know better. You have sound or healthy 
knowledge. You know true doctrine. Now, I don't want to be uh, historically snobberish because we stand in a more enlightened position than they did. Remember, they thought that they were right, but they were wrong. Truth never changes. Our reception of the truth may change, but truth never changes. It's not as if asthma cigarettes were really good for those people back then. They were never good. They thought that they were good, but they were never good. You say, what's the difference? The difference is not on how you approach it. The difference on what is reality and what is not. The difference is what is true and what is false. Cigarettes have always been bad for your health. Always. Always. It's not as if when we think that they're bad, then they become bad. No, they've always been bad. So what I want to do in the time that we have left is I want to give you three points this morning that encourage you to pursue contentment. Three points this morning from this text that encourage you to pursue contentment. And three points that emphasize how healthy teaching leads to healthy living. How healthy teaching leads to healthy living. And the secret, listen, the secret to healthy living is spelled out in verse 6. Look at verse 6. Godliness, or verse 5. Godliness, or verse 6. Godliness with contentment is great gain. And so number one this morning, right teaching is healthy teaching. Write that down. Right teaching is healthy teaching. What is the teaching that agrees with the sound words of Jesus Christ and accords with godliness? What are those teachings? In other words, what are these things when he says in 6, uh, in six verse 2 in the second part of verse 2, teach and urge these things, what on earth are those things? Well, in summary, we should say everything that came before. But what is the point? The point is between true doctrine and untrue doctrine or false doctrine. One doctrine will lead you to eternal life, truth. The other doctrine will leave you, like was mentioned in chapter 1 of Hymenaeus and Alexander, you will make shipwreck of your faith. In other words, you won't make it safe to shore. One doctrine leads to the promised land. The other one leads to the depths. So, remember... Our reason for ministering, all that we do, we're coming here, we're watching baptisms, we're confessing the same thing that they confessed earlier. Our reason for ministering is to bear witness of the one who is himself the righteousness of God. As 1 Timothy 3.16 says, the mystery of godliness, it centers on a person. As 1 Timothy 6.3 says in our text, it is our Lord Jesus Christ. He Himself is the truth. He Himself is the one who is without spot. He is without blemish. He is the sinless one. He is the perfect one. And He intends for you and me, all of us, when we greet Him, we're going to greet Him without any spot or without any blemish. That's what Ephesians chapter 5 said. We're going to be presented to our bridegroom as a pure bride. Pure, holy, and blameless. And so look at this. The result of unhealthy teaching displays itself outwardly. Look at this list beginning in verse 4 through 6. Look at what it says. He's puffed up with conceit, understands nothing. 
He has an unhealthy craving for controversies and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions. Nobody wants to hang out with these people. Verse 5, constant friction amongst others. And then look look at this. Look how far-reaching the results of this is. They are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of great gain. So these folks are not only depraved, but their own depravity keeps them deprived from the truth. Look at the language. Their own depravity keeps them deprived of the truth. In other words, they are in a cul-de-sac of their own reasoning. The cul-de-sac of their own reasoning just going around and around and around. And at the beginning of that cul-de-sac is their own desires. And so here's the circle, as James tells us. Desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. How do you avoid death? Healthy teaching that leads to healthy living. And who is the standard of health this morning? Who is the standard of health? You know it. It's the Sunday school answer. What's his name? Tell me, church. That's right. Jesus is the standard of health. But listen to this. This Jesus whom we love, he doesn't just simply say, there's the way. He says, I'm the way. You see the difference? One points you over there and says, you go figure it out. The other one says, put all your hope Put all your trust, lay your burden down, and trust in me. He himself is the way. Number two this morning, right teaching always gives an eternal perspective. Not only is right teaching healthy teaching, but number two, right teaching always gives an eternal perspective. The gain that we are to seek is not, or is rather, an eternal gain. Notice verse six, godliness with contentment is great gain. Don't miss that. It's godliness wedded with contentment. It's contentment wedded with godliness. That is great gain. So apparently we learn a little bit about these guys who are listed in chapter 1, beginning in verse 19 and 20. They, These guys, these false teachers, they're consumed with themselves. Consumed with themselves. Consumed with themselves. And in the West today, what I mean specifically when I say the West, I mean in America. We have something that has been called the prosperity gospel. And this is nothing new, but it's been elevated due to the amazing wealth of our age, especially in the West. We are more wealthy than any people who have ever lived. And the face of Western Christianity is becoming too closely tied with the prosperity gospel. And it's unfortunate. And at the core, listen to the preacher this morning, at the core of the prosperity gospel are phrases like, listen, your best life now. Or phrases like, you get spiritually rich and you get financially rich But at the core of these teachings, listen, listen to uh, 1 Timothy 6, verse 6. At the core of these teachings is not godliness, but a pursuit of self. Wrapped up and disguised 
in godliness. I like what John Piper says about the prosperity gospel. Listen to what he says. If God's love for His children is to be measured by our health, our wealth, and our comfort in this life, then God hated the Apostle Paul. What's the eternal perspective? What are we aiming at? It's summarized in one word. And that one word that I'm hammering home to you today, as best as I know how, is the word contentment. Contentment. Let me see if I can describe contentment to you. Contentment is about learning to delight in the Lord. Contentment is God taking our souls to the moment described in Psalm 63 when our souls say, Oh God, You are my God. Earnestly I seek You. My soul thirsts for You. My flesh faints for You as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. In causing contentment, God teaches our souls to long for what truly satisfies. And what truly satisfies is the Lord. Contentment is that moment of absolute delight and worship where we are more deeply moved by what He says than we are moved by the passing torrential uh, downpours and the waves of this world. We're more affected by what He says and our hope and confidence is in what He says rather than what we merely see. Contentment is that moment where in the midst of circumstances that seek to force unbelief, we turn to faith and believe in God. Contentment is that disposition provided by the strength of God during all the normal circumstances of our life as life comes and it ebbs and it flows through waves or calm seas. We have this peace of God guiding, guarding, and guaranteeing, speaking into the quiet part of our souls, telling us all is well. Contentment is not a lighthouse in a raging sea. It's not a lighthouse in a raging sea, but a Savior who rests His head while in the boat with us. He has the power at any moment and indeed will command the seas to be still. Our trust is in Him, not in what He provides, but in Him who provides. Number three this morning, right teaching, you see. Right teaching, right teaching will safeguard against any needless anxiety that you have. And I'm speaking today with so many people who have anxiety. I'm not minimizing your anxiety. What I'm trying to do is I'm trying to give you a remedy. And the remedy is not a pill. It's not a plan. It's not a pathway. It's a person. And His name is Jesus. And He calls you down to come and lay all of your burdens, as heavy as they are, upon Him. And when you lay them down, He says, Trust me. I am able. Trust me. Look at what Paul does. He gets right to it. And he warns Timothy about the results of unhealthy teaching. And it really can't get much better than what he says in verses 9 through 10. Listen to it. But those who desire to be rich, they fall into temptation, into a snare. For we brought nothing into the world. And we, excuse me, verse 9. Those who desire to fall into a snare, into many senseless, here's the phrase, senseless 
and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. And then look at what he says in verse 10, probably one of the most uh, misquoted verses in all of Scripture. For the love of money is a root, not the root, for the love of money, not money, but the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It's through this craving, what craving? Craving the love of money that some have wandered away from the faith. And what have they done? They pierced who? Themselves. They thought that they were pursuing God. But in the end, they're really pursuing themselves with many pains. As opposed to the desire for self-indulgent riches, our reception of riches is with contentment and always in service to King Jesus. I'll never forget one time very early on in my ministry, someone they asked me, they said, what do you want to be? And I told them, I said, I want to be a pastor one day. And this person looked at me and they said, ah, that's where all the money is. And I thought to myself, What a sad state when we have people parading themselves as prophets, but in reality they're charlatans. I'm not saying, First Baptist Union, you've been very generous to me and my family. First Baptist Union, you're very generous to your staff. Thank you. But listen to me carefully. Ministry involves money. Just look at chapter 5 and verse 17. But the love, listen, the love of a healthy minister is never money. A healthy minister, a healthy believer has much gain because you have godliness with contentment. You know Jesus. You can have all this world. Just give me what matters. And His name is Jesus. And if you have Jesus... What more do you need? What more do you need? But if you don't have Jesus, you stand in need of everything. And Jesus can give you all that you need and more that you need. But you have to trust in Him. Will you do that today? Would you pray with me? Father, it's my prayer that everyone within the sound of my voice, we all are saying the same thing right now. Jesus, I trust in you. Jesus, I trust in you. Help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You're listening to Hearing is Believing. For more information or to contact us, please visit hearingisbelieving.org.